The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's one of the most hopeful passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. It's the Apostle John talking about Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you ever feel overcome by the world? I do. You ever feel overwhelmed with life, with circumstances? I don't know, maybe, maybe even an impossible relationship? Right? Does it ever feel like it's all just too much? Of course, I know the answer to that question because the fact is we've all felt that way at times in our lives. And if by some chance you haven't, just stick around long enough and you will. You will. Because we all do. We all get overwhelmed along the way. The fact is, it is common to mankind at times to be overcome by this world and what it dishes out. And yet, do you know that not only does Jesus understand that, because he experienced it firsthand in his own life, but he also did something about it. Not just for himself, by the way, but for you and for me as well. He said as much to his disciples. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. So he guarantees us we're going to have real trouble in this world, in this life, and yet Jesus says we can take heart. Why? Because I've overcome the world. John 16, 33. And man, that's good. But what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world? It means that nothing, not even death itself, can stop him from providing for you everything that you cannot provide for yourself. Everything that you need to not just survive, but to thrive in this world. Listen, even when it seems this world is conspiring against you. And you know why that should give you profound comfort today? Because this world is conspiring against you. It is. Jesus promised us that it would. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 18 and 19. This world under the sway, the influence of the one who Jesus referred to as the ruler of this world, Satan himself, is conspiring against the church, against you and against me. So listen, why are we surprised? Why are we so easily offended? Why are we taken back? Why do we want to fight back when this world takes a stand against us, against God's people? The Apostle Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter 4.12. I mean, think about what he's saying here. Don't act like something strange is happening to you when the world conspires against you. That's not strange. That's normal. That's what the world is supposed to do. Because the ruler of this world has turned the world against the people of God. Okay, so 
If we're not supposed to be surprised by that, and if we're not supposed to fight back against it, well then how are we supposed to respond to this world? Well, this is what Jesus said. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Really? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Uh, I don't think so. No. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Are you kidding me? Do we do that? And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. I just, I don't know. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Luke 6, 27 through 31. Now honestly tell me, who does that? Come on. Well, there's an answer to that question. One sure answer at least, and it's God. For God so loved who? The world. In fact, he loved this world so much that he gave his only son. He gave his only son who overcame the world for you and for me. Because on our own, listen, we cannot. On our own, we cannot love the people who hate us. On our own, we cannot accomplish what he's created and called us to do. On our own, we cannot stand against the ruler of this world, who is, by the way, our true enemy. But listen, in Christ, we can do all of that and more because Jesus has the final word over the enemy. He has the final word over this world, and whether you realize it or not, he has the final word over your life. That's the beauty of being a child of God. You're submitting yourself under the authority of the only one who has the authority to speak the final word over every experience, every circumstance, and every relationship in your life. And not because he will overcome the world at some point in your life, but because he already has overcome the world. That's good news, and yet... It's the part that we don't seem to always get today, at least, at least based on how we typically respond to this world in our lives. But look, everything that needs to happen for you to walk in complete victory over the enemy in your life has already happened. Do you know that? Everything that needs to happen for you to walk in complete victory over the enemy in your life has already happened. That means you're free to love and give and serve and become all that you were meant to become without being overwhelmed or overcome by this world. How is that even possible? It's possible because Jesus has already overcome the world. And so as a result of what he's already done, listen, because of what Jesus has already done, you don't have to wrestle against flesh and blood. You don't have to fight against the world when this world fights against you. You don't have to try and defeat people who are trying to defeat you because your fight isn't against flesh and blood. No, it's against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. We're going to talk about that next week 
In the second part to this sermon, the fight that we're supposed to engage in every single day, the fight against our true enemy, Satan himself. But we don't, do we? Typically, if we're being honest, I think we spend far more time, far more time, most of us, fighting against flesh and blood than we do against the real enemy, which is exactly what he wants. You see, this is the great distraction His plan from the moment Lucifer was cast out of heaven because if he can get us to turn on each other, listen, if he can get us to focus all of your energy and effort and anger, if he can get you to use your weapons to fight against other people, then guess who you're not fighting against? Him. That's right. If if Satan can keep us distracted as we fight against this world, then he's free to go about his business. You know why? Because we're too distracted by what the world is doing to pay any attention whatsoever to what he is doing. And that's been his plan all along. And it's working! At least based on the response of much of the church today to much of the world today. I'd say we've allowed the enemy to keep us far too distracted for far too long. And so next week we're going to talk about the real fight and how to engage our enemy, our true enemy, in the real battle. The fight for human souls. But first, we need to make sure that we understand what's really going on in the world today around us what's really happening because listen the people that so many of us are fighting against today are the very people we're supposed to be fighting for let's turn to psalm 3 we're going to work our way through this very short but very powerful psalm written by king david who refused to take his eyes off of God even when it seemed like the whole world was standing against him. We'll we'll begin with the first two verses. Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Now look, of all the people in the Bible, if there was ever a person who was justified in feeling overwhelmed overcome by this world. I think David would have to rank somewhere right up near the top of that list, right? We, we just spent a year working through 1 Samuel here where David was relentlessly hunted by and hated by the Philistines, the Amalekites, all the enemies of the Israelites, his own king and father-in-law, at one point his own people, and at another point even his own army. And all of that was just 1 Samuel. Wait till we get to 2 Samuel, where David is hated by and at times hunted by his own family. Psalm 3 is a reference to one of those times as David wrote this psalm while being hunted by his son Absalom, who had amassed a huge army of Israelites to seek out and kill David so that Absalom could assume the throne. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. That's David referring to his own people rising against him. People who were claiming that God was no longer with David, which is why he says many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Listen, to date, this was the darkest hour of David's life. How easy, after all that he'd been through, would it have been for David to be completely overcome by his circumstances, by these heartbreaking relationships? 
And yet if you look a little deeper into the language that David uses just in these first two verses, it becomes very clear that he actually sees this attack for what it is. Okay, in his deepest despair, what are the first two words out of David's mouth? Oh Lord. In the Hebrew, it's the word Yehovah or Yahweh. This is the covenant name of the God of the Hebrews, the one true God. So David's not simply complaining or lamenting his circumstances here. No, he's directly crying out to God, the one authority, the only authority who can do anything about David's problem. The real problem, by the way, which was actually not his son Absalom, who David loves deeply, which he makes clear all throughout the story, even as Absalom is trying to kill him. And although David knows the enemy is certainly working through the Israelites who've come against him, he also knows it's not the Israelites who are the real problem either, as David later pardons all of those who came against him with Absalom. So, so David knows what the real problem is here. And it's not Absalom. And it's not these people who are out to get him. Okay, there, there are a lot of different ancient Hebrew words to describe enemies. The most common one is oyeb that we see in scripture, which means one who hates me, referring to someone who hates you. But that's not the word that David uses here when he refers to those who are rising against him. Instead, he uses the word sar, the Hebrew word sar, which means oppressor. So according to David, it's actually the oppressor who is saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God, which is confirmed further by the fact that only a pagan, uh, someone who's anti-God at the time, would refuse to use the proper name for God in an accusation against one of God's people. They would refer to, to that person's God. So when the oppressor says of David, there's no salvation for him in God, the Hebrew word he uses there is the plural version of the word Elohim, which refers to God's in the ordinary sense. In other words, the oppressor addresses the one true God here as being the same as any one of the many pagan gods at the time. Okay, are you getting the picture? Despite the depth of betrayal by his own people and his own family, David is not distracted from what's really going on here. So he cries out to Yahweh about the oppressor, about Satan, who's accusing him of not truly belonging to God. There's no salvation for David's soul, which is exactly what Satan does. He accuses God's people day and night, which we'll see next week. And so listen, David sees what is actually going on here, and instead of allowing himself to become distracted by what's going on around him, David chooses instead to fight the real battle on his face before God in prayer against his real enemy, Satan himself. Now, keep all of that in mind as we continue in the story, verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So right after expressing his great despair, given his current circumstances and the fact that the enemy's having his way with many of God's people, including his own son, right after that, David expresses his great confidence in God. He says, but you, O Lord. In other words, no matter how bad things get in this world, as long as I have you, Lord, I have all that I need. Okay? God was the only defense that David had. 
Yet he was the only defense that David needed, and David knew it, which is why he says, you are a shield about me, because no matter what the enemy tried to do to him and through the people around him, David knew that his fight was not against those people. Rather, it was against the enemy of David's soul, the accuser who was constantly trying to distract David throughout his life by turning the world against him. You understand, this is the same strategy that he uses against the people of God today. Because look, if the enemy can keep you distracted by believing you have to constantly defend yourself from what's going on in the world around you, then he can keep you out of the real fight. The one where we contend for the souls of those in this world who are lost. That's where the real battle is. The enemy wants to distract you from that battle more than anything, right? Because, listen, you can't fight for someone else when you're constantly trying to defend yourself. You hear me? You can't fight for someone else if you're constantly trying to defend yourself. And so David says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. By the way, the holy hill, Zion, right, the temple mount, that is the place of the presence of God. So David not only understood that the real battle was to be fought in prayer before God, but he also knew that his protection would come from the presence of God in his life. Not from having the biggest army or the best position to fight from or even by being right. No, David knew that his best defense was simply having the presence of God in his life, which is a critical truth that the church desperately needs to recover today okay because listen the knowledge of God without the presence of God will not save you it won't the knowledge of God without the presence of God will not save you in the worst of times your best defense is not how much you know about God it's how close you are to him that matters that's why Jesus said, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit, Mark 13, 11. In other words, when the heat gets turned up and the world turns against you, you don't have to worry about how much you know. Not as long as my spirit is with you, because then you have nothing to worry about. Okay, listen, Jesus is your shield but you have to let him be that for you. right? His presence in your life will protect you, but you have to let him. I'm convinced that 50% of our problems wouldn't exist if we just learned to pray before we speak. You know why? First of all, because he's always with you. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then his spirit lives inside of you, which means everywhere you go, he's right there with you. You understand, that's why we don't have to try and coax the Holy Spirit to show up in our worship times or our prayer meetings or our church services because wherever the people of God gather, he is there in the midst of us because he lives inside each one of us. That's why Jesus said where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, Matthew 18, 20. <clears throat> he didn't say, where two or three gather in my name and pray hard enough or sing loud enough or act spiritual enough, there am I among them. No. He just said, when my people gather in my name, I'm there. 
wherever we are, that's where he is. So it's not a matter of needing to to find God or to get his attention or to wake him up or to convince him to show up when someone or something in this world comes against you because the Spirit of Christ is already there with you. The problem is in the heat of the moment when the pressure's on, when, when we get offended by the world being the world, right? Instead of taking even a few seconds to pray first, to acknowledge the presence of God in our lives and our need of him to be a shield for our hearts and minds in that moment. Instead, we react. We react out of hurt and offense and anger. We react out of a sense of injustice and instead of allowing Jesus to shield our hearts and minds and emotions, we open our mouths and pour gasoline on a wildfire without any thought as to what the Spirit of Christ would have us to do. If you read the story of David and Absalom, it spans across several chapters of 2 Samuel, it's clear that David knows who the real fight is against and who his shield is in that fight. Right? Because he does everything that he can, first of all, to avoid fighting with Absalom. And even when Absalom brings the fight to David, David orders his men not to harm Absalom. Because David loved his son and the people of Israel, the very, the very people who had come against him. But he understood that his fight ultimately wasn't with them. And he knew that God would protect and shield him as long as he remained in the presence of God. So I'm just telling you, If you will make time with God your first and foremost response to every attack, every injustice, every offense in your life, big or small, whether it comes from a friend or a family member or a political opponent or a person of another faith or simply those who have opposing views on things you really care about, if you will make it a matter of course in your life to spend time in the presence of God in prayer before you speak, before you act, Before you respond, first of all, you won't feel the need to defend yourself nearly as much because the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. He will. And secondly, time in the presence of God will take your focus off of that other person. That other person, by the way, who you are called to love, not to defeat. And it'll put your focus back on Christ Instead, who will shield and protect you so you can spend your energy where the real battle is? Because everything else is just a distraction. Okay, always remember, any fight that takes your focus off of Christ is nothing more than a distraction. A distraction that comes from the enemy to keep you off of his back, which is where the real fight is. Author Nanette Elkins wrote, God never said the weapons wouldn't form. He said they wouldn't prosper. Let's keep reading, verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. (laughs) This is an amazing thing for David to say. Right? There are literally thousands and thousands, some translations say tens of thousands of people, Israelites, his own people, who are bound and determined to kill him, people who have set themselves against me all around. And yet David says, I slept great last night. I lay down and slept. 
I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David is so unafraid of what men can do to him that he's able to sleep soundly even while surrounded by those who are intent on destroying him. Okay, Listen, there's a lesson here for us. If you're losing sleep over politics or over people who disagree with you or over the fact that much of the world hates Christians and are increasingly showing it today, right? If you're losing sleep because you're fearful about what is happening in our country, then you've forgotten who it is that sustains you because Jesus is your sustainer. Even though there was much about David's life that must have seemed uncertain to him he was never uncertain about who it was that sustained him through the best of days and the worst of them the apostle paul said god will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in christ jesus philippians 4 19 of course that's a very familiar verse uh, we know it we quote it we say we believe it but why then do we have such a hard time trusting him to do what he said he would do to provide for us when there is lack in our lives, right? When, when there isn't enough money or when we need a new job, when we need healing, when our marriages are a wreck, when life is going haywire, when it seems like the whole world has come against us, why do we lose sleep worrying ourselves to death about what we don't have? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because we're more focused on our need than we are on our supply. Jesus is our supply. He's our sustainer, which means we should always be more focused on him than we are on what we lack. But we don't, do we? When there's a great need in our lives, like, I don't, I don't know, thousands of people who want to kill you, <laughs> or maybe something a little less dramatic than that. Maybe it's trouble in a relationship or trouble in your health or your income or your material needs. Maybe it's the direction our world seems to be heading in. It's, it's really easy to focus on the need more than we do on the one who supplies our every need. And look, the more we stare at the need, the more it becomes the only thing we can see. It's a great distraction that causes us to lose perspective, sometimes to lose sleep, to lose our health, to lose our focus on God and the real battle that's in front of us. So, so what's the remedy? The remedy is stop worshiping your needs and start worshiping the one who supplies all your needs. Okay? We spend so much time focused on what we lack it becomes worship. We worship our needs instead of the one who supplies our needs. If you'll focus on what you have in him rather than what you lack in this world, when you do that, I'm telling you, you'll soon begin to see that most of what you lack is actually nothing more than a distraction to take your focus off of Christ. And by the way, if it is something that you truly need, he will provide it in his own way and in his own timing. The key is to stay focused on him as you spend time with him in his presence. Spend more time thanking him for what you have than you do asking him for what you don't have. Because when you focus on the greatness of your supply, well then, 
the greatness of your need begins to pale in comparison. And that is when you begin to understand that everything else is just a distraction. Elizabeth Elliot once said, God has promised to supply all our needs. What we don't have now, we don't need now. Let's finish our story for today. Verse 7 to the end of the chapter. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is another remarkable part of the prayer by David. As the battle looms ever closer, David calls upon the Lord to whom salvation belongs to deliver him, just as we've seen the Lord do time and time and time again throughout David's life. And yet there's a difference between this battle and all those that came before. Because the very last thing that David requests from God here is for God to bless his people, which you understand includes the people who were coming after him to kill him because they were God's people too. It just further proves that David understood who the real enemy was, not his son, not the people of Israel, not those bent on killing him. And again, if you read the story in 2 Samuel, one of the first things David does when the battle is over is he pardons all of those who fought against him. See, David simply would not allow, even on the eve of battle, he would not allow his circumstances to distract him from fulfilling his calling, which was to be a blessing to God's people, even the ones who weren't serving God at the time. And that's the way it is for us today, too. You see, Jesus is your Savior. He has overcome the world. Listen, not only for those who are serving him now, but he's overcome the world for all those who ever will serve him in the future. All those who receive the gift of salvation that he offers to every human being on earth. And since we don't know ultimately who will choose him and who will reject him, our job, our calling is to be a blessing to this world. To all of it. To every person in this world. To love those who hate us. To bless those who curse us. To pray for those who abuse us. To withhold none of the good gifts that he's blessed us with. Why? That they too may be saved. And I think David understood that. Because even as he prayed for his own salvation. He prayed for the salvation and blessing of those who sought to kill him. I just think that would be almost impossible for most of us today. But David was a man after God's own heart. A heart who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 In fact, if David feared anything, far more than losing his own life, he feared other people dying apart from God. We certainly saw that in his treatment of Saul who was trying to kill him. And we see it here concerning his son and the men who were with him, uh, with his son as they pre prepare for battle against David. See, because he not only knew that God was his salvation, but he also knew that God was the only salvation for all of mankind. And the thought of losing even one apart from God, it shook David to his core. Listen to me, it should shake us to our core as well. 
There's a passage in Hebrews 4.1 that says, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. He's talking about us. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That word fear, phobeo, in the ancient Greek, it's to be seized by alarm, terrified, afraid. It is entirely meant to convey an emotional state of being absolutely abjectly terrified at the prospect of anyone not truly being saved even though they profess to be. See, he's saying it's not enough to simply say you're a Christian. It's not enough to simply attend the church. It's not enough to simply participate in religious activities. You actually have to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the fact that there are people who attend church meetings and participate in the life of the church and profess to be Christians without ever having actually entered in to that relationship, that should rack you with fear. Fear that there are human souls all around us, even some in the church who are dying without the eternal hope of Christ. Maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, okay, but I do have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not lost. I do know him. So so what does this part have to do with me? Well, I'll tell you, it has everything to do with you. Because the way that God pursues the lost is through you. You're his plan for this world. Listen, as weak and broken at times as David was in his own life, right? Far from perfect. God still used David to lead untold numbers of people to him. Okay, I I understand your life isn't perfect. I understand sometimes you may struggle to serve God as you know you should. I understand you're not always the model Christian. Join the club. That should in no way, shape, or form ever stop you from fighting for the souls of people who do not yet know him. That's the real battle. That's the fight that the enemy desperately wants to distract us from. Because even in your own falling short of God's perfect standard for your life, he wants to and he will continue to pursue the lost through you if you will let him. But you know what that means? It means you have to care about the lost more than you care about yourself. Your fear of what happens to those without Christ must be greater than your fear of what might happen to you when you share Christ with them. We should be utterly terrified at the prospect that there's ever anyone in our sphere of influence who does not know Christ because we've never actually taken the time to tell them about him. British missionary Charles Studd who gave up all of his family wealth and prominence and promise for future fame and fortune so that he could spread the gospel in China and Africa, some of the darkest parts of earth, on the earth at the time. Why? Because he cared more about lost people than he cared about himself. He once said this. I've shared this with you before. He said, Some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's the heart of a man who understood 
that God wanted to relentlessly pursue the lost through him, just like he wants to do through you. So look, it's just not enough to care about the fact that Jesus is your only salvation. That's wonderful. But you also have to care about the fact that he's the only salvation for the rest of this world. For the people who hate you. For the people who curse you. For the people who abuse you. You understand Jesus Christ is their only salvation too. And that's where the real battle is. That's the fight the enemy wants to distract you from because that's where your life actually makes a difference in this world. And that makes him very nervous. So look, the next time you turn on the news, the next time you're confronted by something or someone who hates everything you believe in or stand for, the next time you feel overcome, overwhelmed by this life, just remember, if you belong to Christ, everything that needs to happen for you to walk in complete victory over the enemy in your life has already happened. Which means no matter how you feel, no matter how other people feel about you, because of what Jesus has done, you're free to love. You're free to give. You're free to serve. You are free to become all that you were meant to become without being overwhelmed or overcome by this world. I mean, how can that even be possible? It's possible because Jesus has overcome this world. So everything else, well, everything else is just a distraction. Let's pray.